we finally come to exhortation after a long doctrinal section. We've studied in several chapters the work of Jesus Christ, his superior priesthood, his atoning death to establish a new covenant, his entrance into the holy heavenly tabernacle. And then beginning in chapter 9, you may recall that there was a special emphasis on two questions. How is it that men can draw near to God? And secondly, how can they be washed clean? How to approach God in worship and how sins can be forgiven. Those were the two questions at the beginning of chapter 9. And what followed was an answer for how Christ solves those problems, how he answers those questions. Those needs, and they are needs. You have a need to worship God. You have a need for perfect holiness. These needs are met by the once for all perfect priestly work of Christ. So in the rest of the chapter, beginning in verse 19, here in chapter 10, he applies these truths to his hearers whom he calls brothers. Therefore, because of everything I've just said about the work of Jesus Christ, brothers, you who are a fellow believer with me, the church, let me tell you how you ought to live this out. Now, because I'm going to have to preach this sermon, or I've chosen to preach this sermon, in, in, uh, or this section into sermons, let me outline the verses for you so you don't get lost. They naturally fall into two parts, and it's very plain once you see it. There's blessings, that's in verses 19 through 21. There are two blessings. And then there are a list of three duties. Two blessings, three duties. The preacher begins by summarizing these previous chapters, the blessings that Christian believers have through the work of Christ. And again, there are two of these. One is the right to enter into heavenly worship. And the second blessing is help from a great high priest. That's in verse 21. Then what we have in verses 22 to 25 are three duties, three imperatives, three commands, three exhortations. And those are rooted in the blessings. These commands come out of the blessings. These commands all begin with let us. Verse 22, let us draw near. Verse 23, let us hold fast. Verse 24, let us consider. Right? And you may have also noticed, especially if you read this ahead of time, perhaps preparation, that each of these duties is closely connected with a specific grace, the three fundamental graces of the Christian life. Faith, hope, and love. Amen. This is a commandment to draw near in faith. This is a commandment to hold fast our hope. This is a commandment 
to consider how to love one another. These are, in the New Testament, elevated in such a way that we tend to think of them, and rightly so, as three of the most, if not the most, important graces. 1 Corinthians 13, 13 says, these three things remain after everything else is gone. These three things remain, faith, hope, and love in that same order. The apostle Paul considered them fundamental to the Christian life. 1 Thessalonians 1, 3, constantly bearing in mind, he says, your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope. There they are again. Later in that same book, Chapter 5, verse 8, he declares that Christians have put on faith, hope, and love. So these duties must be important. So that's the big picture. Two blessings which summarize the multiple chapters of the work of Jesus Christ. And out of those two blessings, out of that summary, come three duties. Now what we want to look at this morning are the, the two blessings and the first of the duties. So, the big picture, two blessings, three duties, with three matched graces. First, the blessings. Because Christ accomplished his Father's will, certain blessings, certain new covenant blessings come to believers. These are sometimes called indicatives. That is, they're real things. They're objective realities. Since the doctrine that's been taught is true, it means that certain blessings are present realities for believers. And these indicatives lead to duties. If Christ has done certain things for his people and brought them blessings, and that's obviously true, then his people should respond in a certain way. Oh God, we're so weak and foolish. Tell us how we should respond to this great grace you've poured out upon us. Well, he does that. He says, here are three. Here are three big ones. Again, notice the structure of our verses. Therefore, brothers, since Christ has done something for us, and then in verse 21, and since Christ has done something else for us, then let us draw near and let us hold fast and let us consider. Since this and since that, therefore let us be about this business and this business and that business. Because Christ succeeded in the covenant of redemption from his Father and by the Spirit, we have things we ought to be doing. And more than ought, and this is the blessedness of the new covenant, more than just ought to be doing, we have the ability to do. Yes, amen. Oh, this is good news. This is an oppressive law. This is the law of Christ, which you have been enabled to completely fulfill. You can do this. What I'm going to call you to do, when we look at that first duty later, you can do it. 
Because of the work of Christ, you can do it. In the new covenant, Christ has secured all we need to please the Father, including even the ability to obey him. So it's often said this way theologically, the indicatives, the, the purchased realities from Christ, lead to the imperatives. Indicatives enable the imperatives. Or to put it a final way, a way that maybe you're more accustomed to, the perfect work of Christ enables Christians to do their duty to God. The work of Jesus isn't only to make your record clean. Oh, it is. It is that. It is your justification. He is your justification. But it's more than that. It's to make you clean. It's to make you pleasing to God in yourself. Some of you still think you're totally depraved. If you're a Christian, you're not. Oh, you still have remaining sin and it's very powerful in you. We'll talk about that later. But you actually have the ability now with your new heart. Remember that blessing of the new covenant that we've learned about in past weeks? Because you have that, you can now obey God. You can please God. You can do good to men. Really do good. In this life, it's never perfect. But it's real. Because Jesus Christ's blessing to you of a new heart, for example, is real. You're not an old man only anymore. You're a new man in Jesus Christ. All right, so here's the first blessing. It's found in, it begins in verse 19. It's found in verses 19 and 20. Here's the first blessing. Authorization to enter the worship room of heaven. Authorization to enter the worship room of heaven. See, some of you think that you're only physically here in this Awana room of First Baptist Church of Oak Grove. You are mistaken, dear friend. Oh, yes, you are here in body. But I hope in spirit, I hope in, in, a, in a very real way, you're in heaven today. You have received the blessing of Christ, the authorization to enter the worship room of heaven. He puts it this way. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Remember from our study previously, the holy places are today heaven. It's the place of worship. It's the real tabernacle, he he has called it. In other words, this is just old covenant language for the place in the tabernacle where God was, where men then actually couldn't go to worship, except in the person of their representative, the high priest. And he could only go on one day a year. He could only go in twice. He could go in once with a sacrifice and immediately afterwards with another sacrifice. And that was it. That was That was as close as any human being in the Old Covenant could draw near to God. That doesn't sound much like drawing near, does it? That's because it's not. It's not. It's only a picture of what really drawing near is. Our verse says that New Covenant believers have confidence to enter the real holy place in heaven. Now, you and I, we both know 
that confidence sometimes is misplaced. Right? You can be very sure about something that you find out later is false. It's not true. It wasn't real. So when we speak about confidence from a subjective perspective, we need to recognize its weakness. But this word that's translated often, confidence, can also and, and be translated as the right to or authorization, which leads to confidence. So this is not just, you may be right, you may be wrong, but you think you can go to God. No, this is a purchased by Jesus Christ right, an authorization, for you to enter heaven and worship God. You should know that, you should believe that, and thus be confident in it. But whether you are or not, you still have the right, you still have the authorization. When confidence is rightly placed, when you are legally on the right side of the law, as it were, then your confidence is sound. And that's what it is here in verse 19. Christians rightly have confidence to enter God's presence in the heavenly place of worship. Why? Because of the atoning death of Jesus Christ. See it in the verse? By the blood of Jesus. We have a right to enter because his death paid for our sin and guilt because his flesh as the next verse says was torn like the curtain in the temple was torn a way was opened up to God he actually accomplished this remember his concerns how do we draw near to God how do, how do sins get forgiven well here it is right here this is the great blessing of Jesus Christ he has removed Believers sins so that they can worship God. Christ, by his death in the body, opened a way, and not only opened a way, but because he ever lives, this is a living way. In other words, this is a way that always stays open. You are not experiencing something today in terms of um, being in the presence of God. That... Well, the door might be shut tomorrow. The curtain might be pulled tomorrow. No, 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 no. Christ once for all time was slain. So his blood and his body, his continuing life in heaven is our intercession. It's our assurance that this way stays open. The Old Testament people of God couldn't draw near to God except through their representative, the high priest. Only on one day a year, two times to make sacrifice, and then the veil was closed, right? They didn't draw near to God personally, frequently, or boldly. When people say, oh, what's the advantage of being in the new covenant? Right there. You can approach God personally, frequently, and boldly. Oh, praise the Lord for the work of Jesus Christ. All of that Old Testament weakness is changed in Christ. We are authorized to draw near to God, get this, 
as often as we need. How often do you need to be with God? How often do you need his help? How often do you need a high priest? How often should you worship God? That's how often the way is open to him by Jesus Christ. And we can come not only at any time, but at any time with confidence. So now let me ask you a question that's not that's clearly in the text, but not in these words. So what does this work of Christ make us? Who are you in Christ through this blessing? You're a priest. You're a new covenant priest. You see, in Christ, we are the fulfillment of the Old Testament priesthood. The rest of the Old, uh, New Testament confirms this. Think of verses like this. You, you'll think of others and you, you can look up others later. But 1 Peter 2.9 says, we are a royal priesthood. Yes, Jesus Christ is the king of kings. And he's the high priest. But in union with him, with the blessings of the new covenant, you and I are royalty. And you and I are priests. 1 Peter 2.5 says we are a holy priesthood. Well, Peter, why would, why would God make us a holy priesthood? He answers this. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Why has God made you a priest? Because he wants worshipers. He wants worshipers. He deserves to be worshipped. And if you're going to be a priest, you need to have a way open for you and you need your sins forgiven. And that's what Jesus Christ has done. You are priests. You are new covenant priests. It's not that the Old Testament priesthood has so much disappeared, although it has in a certain sense, but it's that it's fulfilled. It's fulfilled in Christ and all those united to him. You see, it's as if Jesus is the fulfillment of Aaron, and you and I are all of the fulfillment of Aaron's sons. Or perhaps more accurately in the context of the book of Hebrews, Jesus Christ is the greater Melchizedek, and you and I are all of the priestly sons and daughters of Melchizedek. That's what this means. That's what this blessing is. God has made us priests so we can worship God. You'll never guess what the first duty is that begins in verse 22. Of course, it's to worship God. We aren't there yet, but it makes sense, doesn't it? Well, that's the first blessing or indicative in our text. Christ has secured for his people access to God. We can draw near to God. Here's the second and much more quickly. A great priest who helps the church. That's the second blessing Christ has brought us. He's brought us himself. This is verse 21. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, Christ's priestly service is over the house of God. He is over believers. He's over the church. Hebrews 3.6 said that Christ is faithful over God's house. And if you ask the question, well, who? Who is God's house? He answers it in the rest of that verse. And we are his house. Yes, 
Believers are the temple of God. We are the house of God. We are the people of God. We are the ones to whom he ministers. He reigns over us as king in a special way, as prophet and as priest. And these are all special glories to us. Are there ways rather faint, frankly, at this point in human history, that those things of Christ are exercised to all men, perhaps in a, in a, in a slight way? That will change when he returns. But right now, he is all of these things for the church. Oh, you are loved. Oh, oh you are blessed. His high priestly service is for our benefit. The church is the sphere of Christ's activity as the enthroned high priest in the presence of God. His life intercedes for us. His prayers, they are for you, O church. What a great indicative. What a great blessing that the perfect high priest rules us for our good. Those are the two blessings. Now what follow are three duties that are rooted and enabled by those blessings. We'll just look at the first one, and that is this. I hope it's very obvious. How, how do we respond to this? Verse 22, let us draw near. If our sins are removed so that God can stand our presence, if the way has been opened so we can enter into the very holy of holies, if we can draw near to God, then what ought we to do? Surely it ought to be that we ought to draw near to God. Let us draw near, verse 22. And all throughout the book of Hebrews, to draw near is to, is to worship. To come privately, yes, but predominantly and most importantly, publicly into God's presence and offer spiritual sacrifices to him. Now, of course, you know, as Reformed Christians, we, we tend to immediately, uh, rightly emphasize a certain thing, which is that, well, we always want to do this according to his word. We want to come into his presence according to his word. That means we come to him only in the ways that he has ordained for us to come. We only draw near to God through Christ. We dare not go to God on our own merits. I hope none of you go to God and say, oh, please listen to me because you know how good I've been this week. We draw near in worship only to the true and living God, not to other gods. And we do it in his way. What does that mean? Well, it, it means that we listen to his word because he speaks to us in it. It means that we pray and praise him in response to his presence. We take the sacraments and we give our offerings. We amen his truth and we accept the word, his word of blessing to us. But the content of worship is not the emphasis of this verse. The spirit of worship is. This is one way of explaining the greatest New Testament verse about worshiping God, John 4, 24, 
We must worship God in spirit and in truth. And we've just talked about how we worship him in truth. These verses are interested in how we worship God in spirit. It's not so much what we do in worship, but how we do it. So this tells us the how of worship. There are two largely parallel phrases in the middle and end of this verse, verse 22, that tell us how to approach God. The first is this, with a true heart in full assurance of faith. You say, Pastor, you've been really encouraging up to now, but I don't have a true heart. I, I, I don't have a true heart. I, I don't have full assurance of faith. Lest I make you angry with me because I've already corrected you a few times theoretically in this sermon. Let me correct you again. You do have a true heart. You have a new heart. I didn't say you have a perfect heart. That's not what the verse says. It's not what it means. But you have a true heart. This true heart is the gift of the new covenant. This was the new heart promised in Jeremiah 31, 33 that you received in Holy Spirit regeneration. Christian, your heart is not yet perfect, but it is true. It is sincere. You really do know God. You really do reverence God. You really do love God and his ways. Very imperfectly, yes, but even more so truly in heart. You have a fundamentally cleansed heart. You have an unburdened conscience. Remember the previous chapters that told us what a true heart was. It was a mind that now knows it's forgiven. Amen. It doesn't mean it's never burdened or troubled by sin. You ought to continue to be troubled by sin if you keep sinning. But when you give yourself to God in confession, you believe his word of forgiveness. You have a true heart. Are there days you struggle with that? Yes. Are there weeks? Are there months? Are there seasons of life where you wonder how in the world could I be characterized as having a true heart? But you do have a true heart if you are a regenerate Christian. If you're a new covenant believer, you have a new heart, a true heart, a heart of faith. Well, what do you do with that true heart? You bring it to God in worship, I hope. Let us draw near. Your heart tells you, I need worship. I need to go to worship. I want to go to worship. God is worthy of my worship. And so believers worship. It's what they do. It's one of the ways you know you're a Christian and the world, well, proves they're the world. Oh, they're worshiping today too, make no mistake about it. They're not just not worshiping the true God. They don't have true hearts, not yet anyway, not yet. But you have a true heart and so you come to the true God. You draw near the heavenly sanctuary 
in full assurance of faith. You believe the truth about God and yourself, and you trust your eternal destiny to Christ. And so you come into God's worship boldly. Amen. You should do that. We ought to come with confidence. Too often our focus is so much on our failings, so much on our sins, that when we come into worship, we see them more clearly than Christ, our sin bearer. Oh, that's messed up, as kids say. That is so messed up. That's so backwards. We see our sins too often more clearly than the great God who in texts like this bids us to come into his presence to worship him and to enjoy him. And yes, to be changed by him. Don't let your sins stop you from drawing near to God. Christ's perfect work has paid for the worst of them. For all of them. So don't underestimate the worth of Christ's blood. Draw near to God with the true heart he has given you and in bold confidence. Now there's a second how to draw near in this verse. With our hearts sprinkled clean. So we're still talking about heart here, right? With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The first phrase is sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And that's really just a, another way of explaining or saying a true heart. It's of course common in Hebrew thought to um, repeat the same idea in a poetic or expanded phrase. And I think that's what we have here. It means that we are to come as those who know we are forgiven. But the end of the verse also tells us to come with our bodies washed with pure water. What? It's exactly what you think it is. This is new covenant baptism. This isn't hard, really, it's not. If you've been forgiven, the sign of forgiveness should be taken upon yourself. If you have a true heart of faith, you say, I want to follow this, Lord. I want to do what he says. What does he say? Be baptized and wash away your sins, is what he says. Both the verbs sprinkled and washed speak of a moment in time. In other words, these happened once, and they enable a person to then come into God's worship properly. The washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, as Titus 3.5 says, that's how we're saved. And baptism, the washing with water, that's our response to that grace. And these are how we are qualified to worship God. You say, Pastor, that sounds like I have to be baptized to worship God rightly. Well, not necessarily, but ordinarily, yes. Because it's the church who worships God. And they do it as an assembly or congregation. And how do you join the church? You, you join the church through baptism. 
So don't take this places the author in the Hebrews didn't intend it to go, but take this urging to baptism seriously. I'm not aware that any of you need this. Um, but may the Holy Spirit make it plain to you. But pastor, you know, this is kind of funny language. <laughs> Sprinkling and washing. Well, that's because, as through so much of the book of Hebrews, this is old covenant worship or priestly language. This is the language of priestly preparation. This verse confirms for us that the author is thinking about Christians as priests. In Exodus 29 and Leviticus 8, both of those chapters describe how priests are set aside so that they can begin to act like priests, so they can lead worship. I hope the parallel is already blatantly obvious, right? Well, we need to have our hearts sprinkled, we need to have our bodies washed so that we can be prepared to properly worship God, so that we can be a part of God's church and we can give to him the worship that he deserves. Both texts tell us that the men were sprinkled with blood and washed with water. Now, again, of course, the, the writer to the Hebrews, is he's writing to New Testament saints, but he's describing the fulfillment of these Old Testament types. You're the fulfillment of the Old Testament priests. Yes, in Christ or under Christ, but you are the fulfillment. This is Old Testament language for a New Testament truth. I hope that helps you see that these two testaments, while distinct, are not separate. Just as the Old Testament priests needed a sprinkling and washing to draw near to God, so we need a better sprinkling and a better washing to draw near to God. We need the sprinkling, of course, of the blood of Christ and the washing of baptism. New Covenant Christians experience the reality of these symbols when they are converted. And so this language points to a real heart worship in the real sanctuary by the new covenant priests of Christ. This is what we're doing right now. You are priests. We have drawn near to God. We have been cleansed. So God is pleased with our, oh yes, admittedly imperfect, and yet in his own words, true hearted worship. Two very quick uses and we'll be done. I'll just repeat the point of the preacher of the Hebrews. First, let us act like priests. <laughs> Start acting like a priest. If you're a Christian, do our duty, worship God. Yes. Come to the gatherings, come to the assemblies and worship God. Yes, worship him privately, yes. Especially prayer. Hebrews 4.16 is a very similar verse. We read it earlier for our confession of sin. Draw near the throne of grace, right? To confess sin, to receive mercy and grace. The, the, the opening to the heavenly sanctuary doesn't just, you know, the doors don't open at 10.30. Not that we take advantage of that start time. And they don't slam shut at 12.17. Or sometime, 
they're open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Whenever you need to enter into God's presence, whenever you need to draw near for whatever purpose, whether it's to confess sins in private prayer or whether it's to worship God in the assembly of the people, the door is open. The church is open. And it is the church. We'll see that in chapter 12. But the emphasis here, unlike chapter 4, the emphasis here is on public worship, as it is in the New Testament, as it is in the Bible in general. He doesn't talk about us as individuals. He says we and our and house of God and let us draw near, right? Justin Martyr, the second century writer and martyr, on this very verse said this, let us act like priests. Let us do our duty and worship. That's it. That's it. What do these verses mean? They mean you're a priest. You should act like it. Worship God. So don't miss private prayer. And don't miss the public assemblies. Secondly and finally, recognize that you are entering heaven when you pray and when you worship. I don't mean bodily. But I mean your prayers reach there. I mean there's a sense in which your spirit meets there. It's not just that Christ is in heaven for you. It's that in some sense, we enter the holy places. You really are drawing near to God in prayer. You really are drawing near to God in public worship. You are entering heaven. All the way? No, that's the not yet. But this is the already that we're experiencing. We experience the already of heaven now. This will become much more plain in chapter 12, and so I won't belabor this. But just understand that when you engage in worship and engage in prayer, you're engaging heaven. You're engaging the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven. You are reaching the God who shows himself in heaven. So come boldly, come frequently, come personally, but prepare well. Prepare well. Come with a true heart, full of faith. Are you wrestling with your sins? Try to get it taken care of in private prayer before you come to public worship. You may not be able to. You may find no success. You may find the success when you come here. Fine. But try to prepare. Come as if you understood that you are, have been granted an audience with heaven. That will change the way you dress. That will change the way you prepare. That will change timeliness. It will change attitudes. It will change who you talk to when you come in. You'll be more ready to talk to God when you come in than each other. Now, I, I, I'm not trying to condemn you for any faults of, of those things. I'm just trying to urge you, push you on to honor God as really well as priests. You don't have to have a tie on. You don't have to have prayed for 47 minutes before church started. You don't have to not be polite and, and, and not say hello or ask about uh, someone, especially if it was something you've been praying about. I'm not saying any of that. But remember where you are 
You're not just on earth right now. You're in heaven. So come with a true heart, full of faith. Take care of your sins before you come. And if you need to be baptized, be baptized. Let's pray.